Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. Thanksgiving from us here at The Contrarians. We are here today to discuss family and friends and a series of movies that we probably under other circumstances wouldn't be able to discuss. No, but it's, it's good and it's very convenient that we just get grouped together. Um, not a, excuse me, not a series of movies. We're talking more of a filmography, a body of work. A body of work. I like that. I like that. Uh, so who are we discussing today? Uh, one Sir Roberto Zambarelli has graced us on The Contrarians podcast here. The filmography, the very polarizing filmography of Robert Zombie, um, beginning with House of a Thousand Corpses, going up to Lords of Salem. There's a lot of ground to cover in between. Yeah, this is a, this is a bonus episode, so that means that we won't go through like the usual uh, thing where we recap the movie in its entirety. We're mostly going to cover like just the main stuff. We do uh, have a special guest with us today. Yes. This is our, our uh, very special uh, Thanksgiving Episode, so therefore we brought somebody else, like to, to fur, you know further our family to uh, break bread with. Yes, uh, this is our friend. Uh, Why well, you introduce yourself? <laughs> I, I don't remember what name you wanted to use. <laughs> Greeting, childrens of the screen. I'm Coriari, the Mad Movie Monk. There we go, Coriari, the Mad Movie Monk. We've read his comments in previous episodes, and uh, he's he's a fan of the show. And he's also probably next to Alex, like the the other person that I know that's like very much into Rob Zombie. Uh, and now, because of the two of them, I'm I'm into Rob Zombie now as well. Well, I think I don't know if necessarily into as much as just. Don't thoroughly, be ashamed of it. Don't be just just, just embrace it. Just embrace embrace it. He's a very just, misunderstood. Yeah, mind. we enjoy the misunderstood tour aspects of Rob exactly. Zombie. Yeah, you you just open minded enough to see what's what's going on behind the, the blood and guts and all that other stuff. Um, so there's really, I mean, the reason that this is perfect for a, a bonus episode is, like, he's only made five movies so far. Well, not counting the animated movie uh, that neither of us has seen. So we're going to leave yeah, that one and behind. And he also directed his own concert film. Yeah. Well, yeah, a concert film doesn't. No, no, no. We're going with, like, the... the it was very well put together. The, the, the bona fide, like... As is his wife. Fic- <laughs> fiction, uh, fiction movies. So he did House of a Thousand Corpses... The Devil's Rejects, Halloween, Halloween 2, and Lords of Salem. And see, that's the thing. He hasn't really done five different movies. He did two epic two-parters, and then... <laughs> and then Lords of Salem. Yes. Yeah. Which is I, equally as epic. Yeah, yeah. By the time he got to Lords of Salem, he'd figure out how to condense it into just one movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Where it does fit into the Contrarian's MO, though, is... Rotten Tomatoes has not shown much appreciation for his, uh, his work. Yeah, he's... A, a, Rob Zombie, I mean, obviously he's making a living out of it, and he's successful enough that more people know him right now that they'll know us, like, in our entire lives. And his wife looks the way she does. Exactly. He is, he is living a good life. But that said, if you look at it just from Rotten Tomatoes' perspective, he's, he's not getting much respect. No. Not he, at all. He's hit 19% twice in his film. Jeez. <laughs> so, I, I, I guess, give us, give us those, those percentages. 
All right. So we started off in 2003 with House of a Thousand Corpses, 19%. Jesus. 2005, Devil's Rejects, 53%. He wouldn't peak beyond that. 2007, Halloween, 25%, which is just mean. 2009, Halloween 2, 19%. And his most recent, Lords of Salem, 45%, which we will get to that. But that was kind of surprising because most people, the consensus on that is... It's his most well put together film, but it still sucks, which is ridiculous. <laughs> they just they they won't give him just a compliment. It'll be like a backhanded compliment if that. They were like, "Wow, that seemed like a movie." <laughs> <laughs> this kid is it really Rob Zombie? Uh, yeah, there's a there's a lot a lot of hate for for his work out there. So what we're gonna do is just kind of like go through the movies first, just kind of summarizing. So if anybody is not familiar with them, obviously they won't get the full effect of watching the movie because that will be impossible to recreate anyway. Yes. But uh, but they will get an idea of at least what it, what they're about. So uh, I recently – I'd watched Halloween 1 and 2 in theaters. Uh, I – Corey showed me Devil's Rejects a long time ago. And then just last night and the night before in preparation for this podcast – uh, I watch House of a Thousand Corpses and Lords of Salem. So I've seen all of his movies. So you've never seen House of a Thousand Corpses? No, no, no. It was the first time I, I saw it, like, a couple nights ago. And, also and mind you, on, like, YouTube probably isn't the best way to see any of his movies. Um, but it was it, it got the job done. Mm-hmm. I'm fairly positive the first time I watched House of a Thousand Corpses was on UMD on my PSP. So <laughs> that's, uh, Were you sober? Were you... Uh... Yeah, yeah, I was, like, a freshman in college, so... <laughs> Uh, I was I was watching it on my PSP. I don't think I had many parties. To <laughs> the, 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 right, you were just drinking by yourself. I mean, it happens. It's kind of sad. That's I, I met a guy the other day. The first time I saw Gravity was on his phone, and I was like, "You poor bastard." <laughs> okay, it's a bit of a virtual. Yeah, it's a bit more of a visual feast. Yeah. Than <laughs> it, was on, it was on his phone eating Cheetos and his underwear. So uh, twelve years ago, Rob Zombie kicked off his filmmaking career was House of a Thousand Corpses. Right. Now, I am not familiar with Rob Zombie's musical output or, like, I haven't seen... I haven't, Genius. I haven't heard uh, uh, Rob Zombie's song. I haven't seen a Rob Zombie music video. Magical. Uh, oh, that's bullshit. <laughs> that's... Uh, you know, I didn't grow up here. So if I you've watched, yeah, if you've watched movies, you've heard plenty of Rob. He's got like a hundred something IMDb credits just for soundtrack. Okay, so just like uh, you know, just knowing about it, like you know, uh, uh, I wasn't aware that I was listening to his music. Or, okay, or, you know, okay, fair enough. So it's not like I could actually, Foreigner. you know, I didn't go into like any of his movies with any sort of expectations. Uh, uh, well, that's not true. I mean, when I watched Devil's Rejects, that was the like, first thing I saw of his, I guess, and I was just. Uh, so from then on, that set the bar. So what was I expecting when I watched House of a Thousand Corpses, which I'd heard wasn't as good as Devil's Rejects? I'm not sure what you were expecting, but I know what you watched was not what you were expecting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, what Rob Zombie watches when he watches that movie is not what he's expecting, right? But but it did confirm something that I was hoping. Like when I first proposed this 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 episode to you and Corey, I was like, I get the feeling that really Rob Zombie is misunderstood, and you really people are getting. Uh, distracted by the surface elements of his movies and they're missing the bigger thing you know what makes him perfect for a Thanksgiving episode which is this is about family this is about absolutely this is about love yeah there's like murders and torture and really horrible things but but really at his heart this is a man that's pleading for the world to be a better place yeah. he's just pleading the only way he knows how you know and it's just through like really disturbing visuals or fried chicken and some guy named Dr. Satan <laughs> yes so so you know House of a Thousand Corpses is like probably his his most basic like stripped down story where it's just like 
these teenagers that in classic movie fashion don't look like teenagers at all. They're more Dwight. like Dwight and a bunch of other adults. It's teenage uh, 30-somethings. Yeah, Chris Hardwick, which I didn't recognize. Uh, did you know <laughs> oh, Chris really? Hardwick? Yeah. It's been years since I've seen He's it. He's in it. I saw him in the opening credits. I have his name in the opening credits. And then... Uh, so I was looking for him, and he was right there in front of me, and I didn't recognize him. I it's, had to get an IMDb later. It's that wig. It's yeah, that it's, awful it's, wig. The wig just throws you off. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so so these teenagers uh, stumble upon uh, Sid Haig's uh, special museum, museum of, like, murders and uh, uh, horrible things. He's, like, he's dressed like a clown. His name is Captain... Spaulding. Captain Spaulding. And, uh, and, you know, so from then on, it's just, like, the classic horror horror movie where you're just like these stupid kids run into things they should know better but they keep pursuing like you know the path that they shouldn't and then they end up dying and being tortured before dying in horrible ways yeah. uh, but what sets this apart is that they're being tortured by a family much in the way of like the Chainsaw Massacre where you know there was like some sort of community there was like a family there that, that you know tortured people together here also Rob Zombie has his own family so you have uh, uh, the albino guy that's not an albino anymore later on. Bill Mosley. Bill Mosley. Otis, yeah. Yeah, Otis. Otis. And then you have the, the, the grandma, what's uh, the mom? What's Mother Firefly. Mother Firefly. And then you have uh, Sherry Moon. Damn right. <laughs> Damn right, Sherry Moon. What's her name? In- uh, it's Baby. Baby. So there, there's a family unit. And later on, you know, you end up finding out that Captain Spaulding is also part of, of, of this unit. And so there is this this family presented to us as like they're together, they have each other's back, and they're just in a way kind of like doing what what they do. This is what what they do. I think that you know you don't fault a tiger for eating like a gazelle or whatever. Yeah. And this is like they're like preying on teenagers the way that they they just do. Like because of the way movies are usually done, you are instantly empathetic to the teenagers. But there's no reason why you should. Oh no, and they're annoying, bratty. Exactly. They, you know, they don't really don't, they don't serve your sympathy. And uh, but because you you're you're used to the way that horror movies are constructed, you're like, oh, these are the good guys, and the people that are killing them must be the bad guys. But look past that. Forget yeah. about good and bad, and just see about you know how the teenagers are kind of hateful to each other, whereas like the family that's killing them. They have each other's They're back. a unit. Yeah, they're they're you know they know what they're talking about. They they they're older and they're more experienced and there's like a togetherness there that you don't find in, in their victims. Well, and also and this plays over into the next movie, Devil's Rejects, too. But what's really interesting about the Firefly family is not all of them are what the way you would perceive a normal family. Like Otis, technically, is no blood relation to anyone in the house. Like he got brought into the family. And then you find out that, like, Tiny has a different father than Baby, and, like, all the kids have different fathers. So, really, you have this group of people brought together, the friends, who are, like, their own unit, and eventually the father comes into play of one of those characters, too. So, you really have this family versus family aspect, and one of them is brought together. So, he's really, like, selling home this idea that family's not even blood, that family is the people that you love, you know? Right. And, uh, family are the people that you kill people together with. Yeah, I've forgotten about Tiny. I forgot yeah. that, that you know he's also Matthew part of, McCory. Matthew McCory, who's he comes back in Devil's Rejects. Yeah, last right? film he ever did. Yeah. So bleeding into Devil's Rejects, we do discover it's at the tail end of House of Thousand Corpses, right? That we find out that Captain Spaulding is. A- yes. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. like the big reveal. Which yeah. since I'd seen Devil's Rejects before, like Corey pointed out to me, he's like, if you hadn't, you wouldn't know. Like that's like the big twist at the end. Well, 
I mean, it's kind. Of, you can figure it out, but the world of the movie is so hyper real that you kind of think, well, maybe it's just like a Tarantino world where it's like, like everybody's a character. Yeah, like everybody's a whacked out killing character, and that doesn't mean they're necessarily connected. Right. The, the crazy clown at the beginning of the movie is not necessarily related to the serial <laughs> yeah. killers that you meet later on. Uh, well, because he only kills the two guys who break into his right. store and try to kill him. He, like it was self defense. Yeah, they set it up in a way where it could theoretically. You know, anyway. I mean, self-defense was extreme prejudice. Yeah. He seems to be enjoying himself. So the bricks were laid for the foundation of family and House of a Thousand Corpses, but the, the house, so to speak, is built with Devil's Rejects. That's where the overwhelming sense of family and pride comes into play. I think this is where, like, the message is the most clear. Uh, where, I mean, you know, from what I've gathered, it's also the one where... Would you say Devil's Rejects is the movie where Rob Zombie had the most control? I would say that he, it's probably the movie where he had the most control, and it's probably... Going into that, though, I think most control and where things worked exactly the way he wanted because he had that control. That's I, I could definitely sense that uh, uh, there was like this confidence that that he didn't have before, and he he comes in and he just basically picks up where he left off in House of a Thousand Corpses. He tweaks a few things, uh, but basically you have these three, four, four if you count like the giant. So yeah. four like murders on a spree, and they're like spend the whole movie terrorizing people, and a lot of uh, uh, just grisly things happening. Yeah. And uh, and once again, because of the way you're used to watching movies, you are repelled by everything they're doing. And then at some point, there's these cops that are introduced. There's also cops in House of a, House of a Thousand Corpses, yeah. but they're kind of like they don't have as much of an impact as the, the right. Cops in, in fact, they have more of an impact on the story of Devil's Rejects than they actually have an impact of the story of the movie that they're in. Right, but in, in Devil's Rejects, like these guys are, I guess, well-known outlaws. They're being chased. Well, basically, the events at the uh, end of Devil's Rejects le- is what leads the cops to actually come investigate them. Um, at the end of, uh, House or, of yeah, sorry, at the end of House of a Thousand Courses, like uh, the brother, the cop in that that's killed is the brother of the sheriff. Yeah. And even though like they don't have definitive proof that he was there, they are that he's there dead. They know that's the last place he went. So it's kind of reading in between the lines. But in the period that's passed since then, because Devil's Rejects begins with a massive shootout, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think with this, Rob Zombie made House of a Thousand Corpses almost a film that was expected of him to make to set up him making the movie he wanted to make with this. That, Very that, true. That makes sense. And then, but again the audience missed the point exactly. because they were like oh this is a film about horrible people and uh, and they kind of get away with it and then oh fuck yeah I'm glad that they died because this is what happens in uh, Devil's Rejects you see this family abuse a bunch of people and then these cops go after them and this one cop is obsessed to, with Forsyth. getting them yeah. William Forsythe and uh, he has to become the monster to end the in monster. order to end the monster. And then, but then it's like it's kind of like he misses the, the. You know, he has them at some point. He finally has them at some point, and then he's just too. Oh, well, he's think, Ahab. There you go. He's Ahab. Yeah. They're like three whales. That he's it, trying to catch. But the family outsmarts him. Right. Yeah. They they, the giant man. Exactly. Wales. Because they're again. Foresight. Yeah. Foresight goes on its own. He he abandons everybody else. And but they are together. They're together as a unit. They they manage to overpower the cops. Mm-hmm. But then in a way, you know, you get to the tragic ending where like they escape the police. They escape the man that was hunting them personally. But ultimately, I think the odds are just too much for them to overcome. There's also the brilliance of that is because Rob Zombie puts you in this world of fantasy, but. You know, that underlying current of family, but you're brought back to reality in the harshest way possible at the end. It's like. However, from their family's point of view, that's kind of the fairy tale ending. 
Like, you know, they die, they die together and they all go out, you know, um, just like, you know, towards the end of the movie, they leave Tiny at the house and like he walks in the house and even though, yeah, and even Otis saying, well, we'll come back for you. You can tell the way he says it. He knows they're not coming back, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, th- there's a, a a very worse, like, I think the House of Thousand Corpses sets up a family. And just he just sets up the family. It's like you thought you were watching a movie about teenagers being tortured, but you're really watching a movie about a family being a family together, functioning together, a- an offbeat family. But it's kind of telling you family is like where you where you don't expect, like an American yeah. Beauty. Like look closer. And these these, <laughs> these horrible murders are a family. In this one, it's more like okay, well, nothing good lasts. Everything has to come to an end. All good things come to an end. And you know, even like the strongest family. They they eventually have to go. So if they're gonna go, the way that a real family goes is together. So they they're just run into a police barricade and they get mowed down and gunfire. Also, they reap what they sow together. They they you know reap the benefits of what they do, but also the detriments and what they establish for them is they created together the end that they wanted. Yeah. yeah, in a way, kind of like like Rob Zombie, you could say like, man, your scores and Run Tomatoes, they keep getting lower and lower. And he'd be like, yes, but that's, you know, I'm, I'm walking to the beat of my own drum. Right. So yeah. just well, much like the, the And again, uh, like right before that final moment, there's a really great solidifying family moment where Otis wakes the other two up and him and Spaulding, who again are not actually blood related, throughout the whole movie they've kind of had a back and forth where they're kind of against each other. And right in this last moment, Otis gives Spaulding the shotgun, like the better gun, you know, and it's kind of this moment between the two guys, you know, and there's everything goes silent as the song kicks in. And we'll talk about this song. Yeah, and there's this great, great moment just with the three characters looking at each other, and even though there's nothing being said, you know what that moment means. You know, it's just like, I love you guys, and I'm here. I'm with you. Yeah, that is, uh, I I think it's a fitting ending to the two-parter that you mentioned earlier. You know, if you're talking about the epic two-parter, like the first one is House of Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects. Now, from then on, he, he, he stretched out his limbs, and he decided to go for a remake yeah, so he he put the the stamp on his debut, his soiree into the film industry. He ended it, he punctuated it with a classic in Devil's Rejects, and then he took on the thankless, unenviable task of being the person to remake Halloween. Despite he got John Carpenter's blessing, John Carpenter said he would never watch it, but he wanted his friend Rob Zombie to make it in his own vision. Yeah, so and, make your movie, man. Yeah, I went and saw it opening day in the theater, and I was so pumped for it, and it lived up to everything I wanted it to be. I, I think it's it's in a way because he's a musician, so in his in his own way, he was like, "I'm gonna play a cover of Halloween." Yeah, and, yeah. And, and he did it his own way, and once again he brought in his own sensibilities, which is like, how do I make this movie about a guy that kills people on Halloween about family? And he said, well, first off, I'm gonna like take us all the way back to when he was a little kid, and like we're gonna focus on the, on the, uh, the family aspect of that. And, well, what's interesting too is if for us Halloween purists, you know, the whole thing about Laurie being Michael's sister that was never established until the, the original sequel was made. In the original Halloween, basically, Laurie was just the first person he saw when he got out of the cuckoo bin, and he's like, okay, I'm going to follow that bitch around and kill her. Um, whereas here, you know, Rob Zombie just delves right into one of the more controversial things. That's a big dividing point with Halloween purists. They think it should be or shouldn't be. He just goes at it pretty much from the opening scene. You, it's established that Laurie is his sister. And again, the strong tone of family that Rob Zombie right. brings into his movies. Mm-hmm. Now here, it's like, whereas... The, uh, uh, 
has a thousand corpses showed you started by showing you uh, uh, the family established and this like this is a family that you should be rooting for but you just can't because you're everything else is obscuring the fact that they're a family uh here he shows you a family that's broken i mean there is i think that the audience is right when they hate the stepfather oh yeah uh, you know you have foresight again yes foresight again playing the most asshole-ish stepfather ever uh and then sherry moon playing michael myers's mom uh who has good in her, but can't say no to her abusive alcohol. Right, you yeah. know, it's like you can recognize that 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 archetype, and then uh, and then you know he, you have Michael Myers, and then Baby Lori, and then the, their older sister, who's kind of uh, you know very uh, homophobic, rude, uh, <laughs> abusive older sister. Yes, uh, uh, so th- this is a family that's not working from the beginning, but there is there's a stronger family. Like Michael has a bond with his mom, he has a bond obviously with his baby sister. And and uh, like Corey pointed out when we were talking about it a while ago, there's there's this search for uh, a paternal figure that's not there. Obviously, you know his father, his original father is not there, and his stepfather is a complete dick. So that he, also brings into question the, the phallic symbolism of the giant knife. Yeah, and later on it comes into play more with the introduction of Doctor Loomis taking on the role of the absentee father figure, exactly. which also plays into Michael's escape from the asylum. Um, especially in the director's cut of the movie, you get a really nice scene that's not there that helps reinforce it. But yeah, yeah. So basically, in Rob Zombie's Halloween, you spend a good, a solid like thirty minutes with Michael Myers when he was a little kid, and uh, he he kills some hamsters, he kills some dogs, and then he kills the kid from Spy he kids. does kill the kid yeah. from Spy Kids. I was I, I couldn't remember, but yeah, he beats him up and then he kills him. Last week I watched Get Eaten Alive and. Inferno, just quick stuff. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. He gets, he keeps getting. Uh, <laughs> he knows his role. <laughs> yes. Uh, Is he the one who screams? They've got the munchies. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> uh, so anyway, you, you get to see him, you know, murder a bunch of living beings, and then he he finally gets institutionalized, and that's when Doctor Loomis comes on playing by Michael McDowell, and who uh, oh, man. Those shots of him in the late seventies—that hairdo. Seriously, <laughs> yes. Which uh, they had to do something to distinguish him from the Donald Pleasance version because, like, it's so hard to remake that character. Because Donald Pleasance is like he's an icon of like the Silver Age of horror and just like that whole era. You know the way pure evil. Like, how do you top that? You just go the other way, right? You just you just do the Malcolm McDowell way, and uh, and he they, definitely. They do have though that homage where he has the exact line of dialogue that Pleasance had. The, I think I know whose grave that is. Yeah. <laughs> Complete sidebar. Uh, but yeah, he, he basically becomes Michael's uh, step in for a, for a father. He's his, his paternal figure. And then, uh, again, like Corey pointed out, because I didn't get to watch all of Halloween. I, I remember like the big moments. But, uh, but yeah, it's not until Loomis, you know, basically gives up on, on treating Michael that well, Michael escapes. Well, and he says that, too. During that, when he's transferring him over, he says, you're the closest thing to a friend I've ever yeah. had. Yeah, he just sets him off. So from then on, I mean, uh, you probably know the, the 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 basic story of Halloween, but yeah, he just puts in a Halloween mask and he goes and kills a bunch of people. Well, uh, that's about right. But I, I really love in Rob Zombie's version that you see that Michael has been made. He's made all these masks. Like they really reinforce the idea of what the mask represents. And again, it actually has this kind of ode to family because it's going back to the mask that he used to commit the original murders, which was the clown mask, and then getting the official Michael. Anyway, there's this idea that it's a tool used that he believes is a tool he's using to put his family back together or to fix it. And there's this one jack-o'-lantern mask he's been crafting for the night of his escape. 
And I'm sorry, I just I love the significance of it, so I had to point that out. Right. And uh, it's really the only jack o' lantern imagery that you really get, other than one other nice thing later on in both movies, or just in this first, uh, one? just in the first one. Well, then basically his killing spree is only two because he wants his family to be back together again. He finds Lori, right. brings her down to the basement. He can't really speak, so he just kind of expects her to understand who he is. And then when she stabs him and turns on him, that's when just all hell breaks loose. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 very tragic. Again, like you know, there's this tragic undertone that it was there also in Devil's Rejects, not so much in House of Thousand Corpses, which was more as in like a, a fun celebration of family. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but here, it's just ultimately Michael's. He's just so out of touch with society that that it's just impossible for him to achieve his goal of like getting his family back together, and instead he's just misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, then again, because of what happens in Halloween too, I mean, there is there is more to the story. It's not just that, oh, well, they foiled his plan and now this is over. Uh, I, I've i only seen the theatrical cut of Halloween a long time ago, and so I I actually needed Corey to enlighten me because he had seen the, the director's cut, which actually goes into more detail about like the connections between Laurie and Michael. But basically what happens in the second movie is just Laurie's... Uh, well, Lori and Dr. Loomis are survivors from, like, the first movie, and they have to deal with the PTSD of that. Yeah. And so while initially you would think, oh, that's where the family element comes from, the fact that as survivors you guys are family, you're yeah. together, it's still about Michael and Lori and more so, like, Lori kind of, like, reaching out and trying to figure out her place in the world now that, you know, right. she's found out that her little brother, or, well, her older brother is, like, this, this murdered maniac, and what does that mean for her? Well, all that, and it's also about Danielle Harris being a 30-year-old woman playing a 17 year old child well and also they do they do the interesting thing in the movie of like at first Lori's dealing with the ps uh the post-traumatic stress of it of just what happened to her and um you actually see she's living with the sheriff and uh again as you were saying uh daniel harris uh he's living she's living with them you know who are also the people who are the most traumatized and you can see the divide it's putting between them and then once she actually halfway through the movie about a book comes out written by Dr. Loomis, who has now taken his celebrity to another level after surviving his brush with Michael. And the book comes out revealing who she is, and that's, like, totally when Lori, like, goes off the reservation. Yeah, and, and, and that's what you can tell. That's why they're not connected, even though they're survivors. They're not connected because Loomis kind of, like, reveals his true colors once he hasn't this new situation thrust upon him. You know, he becomes a best-selling author, and now he's just, like... He, in a way, he couldn't care less about Lori, the way that Michael still cares about Lori, and uh, that's when it's revealed that really the real connection is still between Lori and Michael. Lori still has, like, she has now, she finds herself having like the same visions and whatever right. that Michael has. They share visions of their mother and all this stuff. So, so it's a, it's a very, it's a very abstract point to make for people. You know, even the people that like the first movie, I think. Maybe they were not liking it because of the the family stuff. They were just like, "Oh, this is a cool Halloween movie." You know, it's an updated Halloween or whatever. And then they went to the second one, expecting you know a higher body count and maybe like more gore. And I don't know. And then instead, they were confronted with this like this very complex take on like what happens well after a slasher movie. <laughs> and again, I'm not sure if I, right now I'm supposed to be talking about the theatrical or the director's cut, which are two completely different movies. Um, but for right now, I'll focus on the theatrical cut. Mm -hmm. In the theatrical cut, the studio was not happy with the movie he turned in. They wanted a slasher movie, so Rob Zombie was told that he needed to add some kills and remove some of the more psychologically driven scenes, which in the end really 
takes away from the story he's actually trying to tell and gives you a very messy kind of standard sequel to a slasher movie. Uh, but when you look, you can see the framework of something greater at play. Yeah, let's let's acknowledge the director's cut as a superior cut uh, in order to really uh, give Rob Zombie his due as far as his intentions. We're like, well, he obviously was going for this. And the theatrical cut is through no fault of his own. It just doesn't quite do them justice. Right. But still, even then, I, I think that a lot of stuff that's missing with the theatrical cut, yeah, makes it harder to follow. But the, the core message is still there. Yeah, it, that's it, true. It still ends with Laurie just being crazy. Well, Laurie and, becoming part of the family again. Right, in a way, yeah. She's crazy by, by society standards, yeah. but really, by Michael's standards, she's just, they finally, together, right. in a way, together in their madness. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, from Halloween to we, the bookend on another one of his... Yes, another two-part epic. Yeah, and then he went along to Lords of Salem, which kind of deviated from the groundwork he had laid out. Um, I don't know. I, I have a, a, a pretty stern reading on this. I think this is more about religion than anything. <laughs> finding... Uh, a guiding force in life. Well, but it is about family in the sense... It's just that the family is not present in the movie until the very end, I think. I think uh, it was uh, just like, in a way, Devil's Rejects was about the end of a family. This is about the beginning of a family. So it's, you know, you see the steps taken so that by the time you get to the very end, it's like Sherry Moon's character just reunited with, like, the devil or the demon that whatever that wanted to impregnate her and her family, her coven of witches, you know, that she's been representing in the present. So uh, for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. But it's uh, I'm sure it doesn't make much sense to most people that have seen the movie either. No. But but basically, Sherry Moon is a, a DJ. She has a radio show with a couple other guys. Ken Forey, yeah. And yeah. that other guy from Halloween, too. Guy with big beard. And... Uh, the guy who looks like Rob Zombie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then one day they receive this this record addressed to Sherry Moon and uh which is like this this weird like it's from the Lords. And then she plays it and basically every time that they play it on their station, like every woman in that town gets really weird. They kinda like get spaced out or, or they you know, they get headaches or whatever. Sherry Moon herself gets headaches and uh in the what we learned throughout uh, throughout the movie is that this is related to the Salem witch trials, and that uh, th- this is in a way like the the witches from back then who used to call themselves the Lords of Salem. Uh, this is their way of coming back, and I guess. And Sherry Moon's character is the chosen one. She's supposed to give birth to like uh, th- I don't know whatever's coming, like the next level of. of I honestly of, forget how fucking weird the movie is. Until it I'm is. Yeah, it sounds insane when I'm talking about it, but really, when you're watching, you're like, "Oh, I, so how is this? Is how it disconnects?" And you know, by the time when you get to the end, where basically the three women, three old women that live in Sherry Moon's uh, building, uh, are revealed to be like in on it. They're part of like the witch's the plan or what the coven, you know, and they they basically turn her into like this. They they guide her through like her, her ascension to this next level thing. And it, it culminates in her kind of like giving birth to this little alien demonic thing. Right. And then the final shot of the movie is her like, kind of like being the Virgin Mary, basically. Yeah. She's reborn as some sort of goddess or the Virgin Mary is actually even better. better well, I think that's the imagery they're it. going for with that final shot of her standing on top of like all the other women. Yep. So there is, a, that is your family. It's just that this time it took the whole movie to get to that point. 
but also the the family she had in the present as well because there's a lot of people that wanted to help her. Right. Yeah. 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 There's a. Uh, and, uh, um, actually, I do think this movie is about family. Although I think it's the one movie in Rob Zombie's filmography where he approaches family from the other side. Because if you actually think about it, like in all the other movies, it's this group of totally messed up people with a family that works up against society with a family that doesn't work. Whereas in this movie, it's this girl who actually has a pretty tight-knit group uh, of people, but it's actually – and those are her friends. They're not really her family, but they're the substitute family. They're the family that all the main characters in all the other movies have created for themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you have this other group that I think due to the idea that she's tied into the bloodline of the original preacher who hunted them, you're supposed to get the idea that this represents the blood family, like the destined family. Mm -hmm. you know. And it's actually seeing how that family kind of twists and – corrupts her view of the world and brings out the worst in her. So I think for the first time we're actually seeing Rob Zombie explore the other side of family. Well, you know, it's been five movies now, so he's he's kind of like, I guess, just branching out. He's like, I've said almost about everything I can say about family. It's time to move on to to, to other stuff. Uh, well, and of course, in the other two incarnations, he had two films to do that. And right. He just had 90 minutes. He just wanted to get a, a full tale in. Yeah, yeah that, that, is, that is a good point. Uh, but there is more... Uh, there's not just that. I mean, that's that's just like an overview of his five movies. But there's there's these threads that come throughout uh, all of them, and I think uh, you don't have to look much further than the fact that his wife's in all of his. Movies. That's exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah. I mean, Sherry Moon is is a presence in all of the movies, and it's not just that. Oh, I like this actress. I'm gonna keep putting her on on it. It's it's like no, that's his wife. So. Uh, Talk about like you know really committing to family. Yeah. It's like that probably helps that she's actually a good actress. You know it. It took her a little bit, but yeah. She, uh... I I was actually surprised by how much I enjoy her performances when I rewatch uh, Halloween. What I rewatch of it, and then you know just seeing her in Lords of Salem and uh, the other one that was has uh, a thousand corpses. Yeah. I mean, she's still. I had this idea of of her not being that great of an actress because a lot of, of Halloween two. Well, just because Halloween two just kind of like you know it was. She's, a lot of people have that preconceived notion, too, because she's not in anything else. Yeah, mm -hmm. like, she's not in a lot of stuff. Like, I think one of the biggest things she's done other than Rob's movies are is the remake of The Toolbox Murders, which, despite being made by Toby Hooper, is not great. But, yeah, yeah, she's uh, she's definitely, like, a big, a big threat to follow throughout his movies. You know, that is, this is a man that obviously is committed to his family. And then not just her, but he, Bill Mosley, he has, yeah. he has a... a an ensemble of actors that he just goes to like he has his own filmmaking family behind the camera that he just feels comfortable he, with he's not bothered by the fact that it's not like the aforementioned Aptow where it's all like the hot button people right yeah no he's just going with, with just like the people he likes and well. And, sticking to his guns and you, or knives. And, you know, you kind of think that making a Rob Zombie movie, when you look at the content and, like, how they make them, going and making a Rob Zombie movie is like going to war, you know? <laughs> and, like, you can tell that after each movie there's been a couple of new people that Rob Zombie's been like, all right, you're permanently in my platoon. Like, we are a unit, we're a family, I'm going to take you on because you are an all-or-nothing kind of cat. Like, yep. when my back's against the wall, you know what's up. And then there's just the fact that... I think that once you become a Rob Zombie fan, you are invited into that family. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're like, then you're part of that community. It might it might take you some work, but then once you actually get to the bottom of what his movies are saying, What's then... Family. It exactly. Be, it's always work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, Exactly. It's family, so it takes some work, but then there's that big reward of like, well, now... Now you have you have Rob on your side and Sherry and Sid and yeah. Bill and everybody. You know, they, they got your back. So, uh, so there's that. Now... Let's let's hit like the big the big song 
the okay, yes. the the end of Devil's Rejects uh, has a probably <laughs> the most famous scene he'll ever direct. Probably, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we did we did uh, Elizabeth Town a few episodes ago, uh, episode fifteen or sixteen, and we talked. We praised its use of Freebird. Uh, and the climatic scene at, at uh, Orlando Bloom's father's funeral. Well, here it, it gets used again, uh, and you—it's a testament to one, the song itself, and two, just like the ability of filmmaker to use it, you know, in a completely different setting, yeah. a completely different way, and just bring out like all its power. But uh, basically, when uh, when the family in Devil's Rejects is finally, you know, facing their their destiny and they're getting killed. Uh, does Freebird play like it's an well, entirety? It, it's or? basically as soon as they. It's almost. It's. Well, I know there's like what, like a 14 minute version of the song out there somewhere, but they do like the 10 minute 20, like a 10 minute 20 version. So it's pretty much the whole song. Um, and it starts pretty much right after they drive away and the house explodes. Then you get all these beautiful helicopter shots that are like. It's almost like, wow, they got away, it's the end. And then, like, you know, they come to this moment where they stop right before the song really kicks in and they reveal the police. And, like, Mosley gives this look up to the sky right as, like, the heavier guitar starts speeding up and stuff. It's it's really a nice moment. And, you know, uh, I think that, like, some movies, they use a song in a way that that's what you always think of when you hear that song. And I mean, you have talked, like, for me, it's Devil's Rejects when I hear... Freebird, that's what I see, no matter what. And you've told me it's Elizabethtown. I've heard that from a couple of other people. Yeah, I mean, it depends, I think, maybe on what you what you actually happen to watch first. Right. Uh, there is, there is a, somebody brought up, when I put it on Facebook, somebody brought up the fact that there's there's this movie called Duets. Yeah. With, uh, have you seen it? I haven't seen it. I've heard about but, it. But, uh, you know, it has like a bunch of names and uh, in it, I've never seen it, but there, this friend put up a clip of it where, uh, oh man, what's this guy, the... He's a he's a famous actor. He was in uh Okay, The Mist. Yeah. The, no, not Clark Gable. In the Mist. <laughs> in the Mist, the guy that that you know is so hardcore about going out and then he finally goes out and gets killed. Um oh. the black guy that's Oh yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't oh, I don't remember his name, but yeah, but, he's but anyway, awesome. Yeah, that guy sings like a uh, like an acoustic version of Freebird in that really? movie. Really? I know. I was like, "Oh, wow." I was like, I mean, I'm like, it's still it's no Elizabeth Town or, or Devil's yeah. Rejects, but I'm like, good. That's that's another one in the in the Freebird pantheon, which could be e- it could easily get diluted. You know, it's like if everybody yeah. started using Freebird, it's like, "Oh, Freebird is awesome." See how it's like, "No. It's not that Freebird makes that movie awesome, it's that that movie uses Freebird in an awesome way." Yeah. Yes. However, um I should probably point out at this time that uh, Elizabeth Town and Devil's Rejects, that's the same year. Uh, those movies came out the same year. It's the year of the Freebird. And, uh, you know, uh, Cameron Crowe being a, like, formal rock, former rock and roll journalism, I just get this idea that, like, him and Rob Zombie were sitting around one point together and be like, you know what? We know rock and roll, don't we? Yeah, we know rock and roll. Well, we should show the world in our next movie, whatever it is, we should show them that we know rock and roll. What's rock and roll? Motherfucking Freebird. <laughs> On their weekly, where weekly get together, they were like talking, right. like, you know what's cool? Freebird is cool, yeah. isn't it? We, we should put it back out there. This should be the year of, uh, 2005 should be the year of the Freebird, you know? Rob and the Crowbar just making the <laughs> Right? <laughs> yes, they're shaping the movie industry in a way that none of us were aware of. Unless it goes deeper. I mean, I, I don't know that it could go deeper than, than, uh, than oh, Cameron Crowe. In... It can go deeper. Have you seen all the ramifications since the year of the Freebird? I have this very... I have evidence, okay? I'm not going to put it all out here now because I'm being listened to and other people are taking note of my actions, but... 
there are all these other things that have happened since then, and I firmly believe that both Rob Zombie and Cameron Crowe are members of the Golden Circle. If you don't know what the Golden Circle is, look it up. It's a Civil War thing. <laughs> and I don't want to go on record saying too many nasty things about a man whose last name is Zombie. That, that makes rule, sense. As a rule, don't fuck with someone whose last name is Zombie. Uh, it might be too late, but well, we always say this nice things. At so least I get, if I get killed by Rob Zombie, I'm getting killed by Rob Zombie. Hopefully, right. he'll bring you know Bill Mosley with him. Yeah, yeah, and they can wear <laughs> my face. I'm cool going out like that. Yeah, uh, there is. I guess it's a nice button to that Freebird thing. It's just that uh, there was uh, a movie this year, last year, uh, Kingsman. Yeah, they came out and they kind of like try to pull that that Freebird thing where they're like, oh, you know, it worked before, and uh, let's do it now. And they have like an action sequence scored to Freebird, and that's one of those moments where like I think the song. It's cool, oh, yeah. but the movie is not. Because everyone has all these great feelings about that sequence, and everyone loves it. But it's like when you actually look at that scene and what it's about, it totally doesn't actually work on it on most levels. But it's still really fun because of Freebird. And yes, cool action. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could score anything to Freebird, and you get you're gonna get an initial reaction that's yeah. that's positive. But then it doesn't stick with you the way that a Rob Zombie movie yeah. would. If a porno could get a clearance for Freebird, they'd probably win. An, <laughs> they, you know, they'd win some legitimate awards. That is, I a porn escort free bird would be amazing. <laughs> I, can't, I can't deny it. Uh, but anyway, that was uh, all all five. Unless you guys have any any other enlightening points, I think we're ready for real talk. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. All right. So speaking of Family Man, Rob Zombie, uh, we went through the overlying themes of all his films. <laughs> Now, his films, as we mentioned from the get-go, are extremely polarizing. And even someone like me, who greatly enjoys some of his contributions, his films are greatly polarizing with me. Um, I suppose we'll just go down the list like we did in the beginning. We'll start with House of a Thousand Corpses. Now, we kind of all agreed before we started recording here, this needed to be Rob Zombie's first film. It, it, it's his, it's his uh, film school. It's his you know, film it, school it, it thesis film project. School. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see that. It's also, I feel like, what was expected of him. Yeah, and I think I made the point earlier that it feels like it's the movie that ends him being, even though he keeps the name Rob Zombie because it's his trademark and like what he banks on, it feels like the last movie that's made by the Rob Zombie stage rock star persona that we had come to know over the last like 20 years, you know, since White Zombie. Yeah, I remember watching it the first time was quite an experience. I, I honestly, I don't really care to go back and rewatch it. I've, I've tried a few times, and there's just some things in this that are just too disturbing. For yeah, me. well, and it's, I really enjoy it because it and another one of his films, when we get to it, I'll mention it, but it really is a love letter to a very specific kind of genre film that was made kind of between the late 70s and mid-80s, kind of in the vein of Texas Chainsaw 2 and Evil Dead 2. Like these horror movies that were over the top and almost cartoons, you know? And I can't appreciate that, but there's some things, uh, specifically the main sequence that comes to mind is when the the main girl's dad comes to the house to try to find her. And yeah. Then, that entire sequence, while well made, is just very difficult to watch. Well, do you mean just like up until the point where a home dude gets shot? Or do you mean like all the way up until when Otis comes out wearing his skin? Like all of it. 
because yeah. that's actually my favorite thing in the movie is when <laughs> is that whole although i'm like i don't know how she doesn't realize that's her father's skin and then it's like oh i don't know how she doesn't realize that that's not actually her father <laughs> but yeah i just and they actually carry that over a little into devil's rejects uh i do appreciate of it though that it starts cartoony and then by the end of it just goes completely into the red with dr Sam. oh yeah uh, um, yeah it's it knows what it is and it sticks to it it just um it's interesting. It's more. In- I find it more interesting than I do good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am here. I would be the outlier. Like I'm in the minority here because I am. Like I said, I've seen all five Rob Zombie movies, and uh, and I've seen Halloween. I guess more than you know. I've seen. I've rewatched like the first half hour or so. So now I can I can easily say five movies in. I can just say. I appreciate him as a filmmaker, but that's not he does not make the kind of movies that appeal to me. So I will watch his movies with you or with you sitting yeah. by my side because that way I'm not I have something to like keep me engaged in the movies. Right. You know, I have like the colorful commentary yeah. and, and that makes it that makes the experience more more colorful, more interesting to me. Uh as uh like as standalones, I mean, I was Halloween. I think, uh, and I told you some of it last night when we were talking about it. Like uh, Halloween stands on its own as a movie that's like has a more traditional structure, yeah. so it's easier to follow. It's easier to digest. To digest, uh, or it's like House of Thousand Corpses. It's almost the complete opposite. I mean, it's more that goes more to uh, uh, what I would say the the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre structure, where just like. You have the victims arriving to this place, right. and then the rest of the movie is just them getting like going through hell. Yeah. And, well, the, and, and, and you know that is, I mean, that is a, a type of movie that is very valid to make if you can pull it off. And I think that you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre pulls it off. I mean, it was the first movie of that kind that I saw, so of right. course it stuck with me. And then this one, I'm like, okay, if that's what you're going for, definitely he pulled it off in the sense that it's very disturbing. Yeah, you know, it's it's not it's kind of unpleasant to watch in in a, in a way, but. But that's what he was going for. I yeah. don't think that there's a thing there that, that he wasn't going for. Like, you know, the, the overall effect is still probably what he was, what he wanted to achieve. Yeah. And it's the last time that he made – well, again, when we get to it, there's another movie where I feel that, like, he put weird things in just for the sake of being weird. But this movie was the last movie before I think Rob Zombie took his place as part of the Bronze Age of horror, which I don't know if I should go into that whole thing <laughs> or not. Um but it's basically just the idea that, like, in the early days of the studio monster movies is the golden age and kind of the late 70s through kind of part of the 80s is the silver age. And then the bronze age is this new age with Eli Roth and Rob Zombie and James Gunn and these guys that are bringing character back into horror and bringing real emotions back into horror and making you believe in these worlds again as opposed to just giving you a body count. Rob Zombie is a vastly superior filmmaker to Eli Roth. Um, oh, no. You guys, yeah, are about to, you yeah. guys are about to clash here. <laughs> yeah, I'll hide under the, under the table. But we did, you know, this cartoony almost, um, you know, homage to many different eras of horror, um, be it, like uh, you said, like one specific there. But there's also a lot of different, um, the colors and things, you know, there's a lot of Argento-type influences. Oh, yeah. And, um, so there's a lot to appreciate with that. But then the sequel, which is weird because it's almost... I wouldn't even consider Devil's Rejects a horror film. I'd consider no. it like an outlaw on the oh, run well, tale. Well, yeah, Corey was talking about how yeah. like it's a Western. Yeah, it's it a is. Western. It is, like, in my opinion, it is the best version of a modern-day Western that I've seen, especially because unlike most Westerns that just play into the idea of American mythology, it actually dissects it in terms of, like, we think of Billy the Kid and all these outlaw characters as 
rebellious heroes, but in truth, they probably did kill innocent people and do things that would just horrify us if we actually saw it in real life, but we hold them up as heroes. Yeah, and that's the problem I've had with a lot of people that are deterrent to this film. They're like, oh, we're supposed to like feel sorry for him and yada yada. I'm like, no, not really. It's just like you're seeing the movie kind of through their perspective and well, yeah. not glorified in any way. One of my favorite parts of the film is when uh, Danny Trejo and fucking DDP, the bounty hunters, get called on them. Like, they have no real answer. Yeah, like... They don't know what to do when they're, like, outgunned. <laughs> yeah, like, and, as soon as it's someone else who's in power, they're taken out quick. But, you know, again, speaking to that idea of it de dissecting the American mythology of the outlaw, it, I really love that idea that in the beginning he gives you the way that you would really see them, and then slowly through the movie prese presents a structure with the characters that allows you to start viewing them the way that we view kind of classical... Uh, American mytho mythological heroes, like I mean, obviously Billy the Kid was a real person, but what, the way we see him is a myth, yeah. you know. And um, so I really enjoy that whole aspect because, like, I feel that in a movie with bad people, like you can, those characters honestly love each other, and because of that, you get a long way into excusing them. Like when they're on a road trip, it feels like every family on a road trip. So you really do buy into that, and like, who do you want to sympathize more with? These guys who are having fun with their family, or the crazy dude who's going nuts in a basement talking to his dead brother? You know, oh, I'll say none of them. <laughs> That's, I I think the reason why Devil's Reaches doesn't work as well for me as it does for both of you is that ultimately, when I was watching the movie, while I appreciated what he was trying to do, I I had trouble. I didn't quite connect. To the to the family the way that you connect to the family yeah. you know what I mean like to me they were still kind of like despicable yeah. and I was like I understand what you're saying you know it's like the guy that's chasing them he's no different in the end yeah. and they have each other and there is something you know in that connection but to me there were still like horrible people doing horrible things and and it was just. Like most of his movies, overall, it was kind of unpleasant to watch. Oh, yeah. Again, you know, commendable in its yeah. commitment. And I was like, again, I get what he's going for. But but it was just like, it, it ultimately boils down to like, yeah, that kind of movie, that's not for me. Well, you know? And again, he wants that. out of Like, he doesn't want it to be pleasant, you know? It's like, I honestly think that in that movie, the reason why everything is so unpleasant is so after you watch the movie and you start thinking about it, you become disgusted with yourself if you sided with them. You know, I, I honestly think that that's kind of part of the psychological journey of that movie. Yeah, I, I think I didn't connect necessarily with any one character in it. The film just connected. I connected to it, and I really appreciated it for what it was. And the the final sequence is awesome. That's kind of like something almost of joke now because everyone kind of goes to that. But I, I really just connected with the film on a lot of levels. I will say, like, it's probably my favorite Rob Zombie movie. I don't think it's his best movie, but it's probably my favorite. There are some things wrong with it. One, it was rushed, so a lot of the visual effects don't look quite done. Yeah. Um, which is kind of annoying. Um, they had a really low budget for those, too. Yeah. And, um, yeah, outside of that, I Willie Forsyth, I, he gets, like, almost too much at one point. But I understand <laughs> that completely by design. Right. Um, but, yeah. Uh, Definitely has the best dialogue of any Rob Zombie movie. Like... The, the chick getting hit by the semi was pretty rough. That's kind yeah. of one of those horror movie moments that I remember the first time I watched it did not see that coming. Right. <laughs> yeah, that is weird because I, I think it's his best movie. Like, you know, uh, in my opinion, it's the best movie. It's not the movie that I would be more likely to rewatch. That would be Halloween, his next one. Yeah. I, Halloween is interesting in and of itself. I, I really meant what I said in the first portion. It, 
It's like J.J. Uh, Abrams and Ryan Johnson, like obviously on a much, much bigger scale, but what a thankless position to be in. Like, yeah. To be the person to remake like one of the most beloved uh, movies of its genre. Because yeah. no matter how good it is, there's a cross-section of people who will hate it no matter They'll what. just hate it on principle yeah. because it's a remake of Halloween. Yeah. A lot of people hated it. I didn't... I was kind of researching it a little bit today. Um, when John Carpenter made a cut for television, because he had to cut a lot of things off for television... He included a lot more scenes, and I, I know I've seen this because I've watched it on TV, of Michael and Loomis in the like psych ward. Like, yeah. Raising him as a kid. So Rob Zombie wanted to base a lot of it off that. And the people I've talked to that really dislike it and are Halloween purists all agree that that's the most interesting part of the movie is the first like act where he's the little kid and it's showing him become crazy. I think this movie's hyper-violence turned a lot of people off because that's you know a thing a lot of people go to, myself included, the first Halloween is pretty bloodless. There's, yeah. It's like, um, there's not too much blood in it. Yeah. And this is just, especially, like, you look at, like, the deaths of Danny Trejo, and um, um, I know Danielle Harris doesn't die in this, but she gets... Oh, like, yeah. She gets, like, the death of a thousand cuts without the death. <laughs> <laughs> well, even the kid that he beats up when he's a little kid, like, yeah, he it's gets... brutal. Yeah, it's it, brutal. it gets pretty brutal. Like, the movie's very hyper-violent, but I think it's all an attempt to make you actually feel the violence, because I know that Rob Zombie is one of those directors who believes what I believe, which is, if you show violence in a movie and you tame it down, like, GoldenEye is a good example of a completely irresponsible movie, because you have all these people getting shot, but you have no inkling to like children who are watching and obviously a child's not going to watch a Rob Zombie movie but when you show violence <laughs> but when you show violence you have a responsibility to show the consequences of that violence and i think in halloween the heightened violence really gets that across yeah and i think also on a more like practical level i would say i mean it is inescapable if you announce that Rob Zombie whose previous two movies have been House of Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects is remaking halloween and then you tone down the violence it's it's like even more of a letdown that you know for yeah. people that are already against it it's like okay if you're gonna do it you can't just like remake it but less violent you have to give it your own spin and the the, the spin you would be spe expecting from Rob Zombie would be like okay I want it to be like right. realistically violent I want it to be harsher on that so in that in that aspect I think it delivers uh, and, and it really like I really like how it delves into the characters and all that stuff I think that it, it did really well uh, this was the first time too I mean Devil's Rejects she, she's not bad in the previous movies but this is the first time where Sherry Moon actually comes across as like polished and you're like I can justify her being in a film without nepotism well, at this point <laughs> and it's also it's also just like the role she has like in the past like both uh, House of Thousand Corpses it's technically the same role even though there's slightly different shades of the character but it's still a very amped up kind of insane over the top character whereas uh you know the mother of michael myers that she plays is very grounded and like even in the senses that she's broken and you can't relate to her you understand it still it's like you know she's this poor woman who works at the freaking like shitty local strip club and like dates this dickhead and is really just trying to get through life and take care of her kids as best she can you know but she's lost like, that's such a much a juicier character in terms of dramatic right. beats and being taken seriously in your performance of it. Uh, I do remember the first time I watched this, the shot of Michael as a kid murdering his sister and her boyfriend where he puts on the mask yeah. and he's still in his clown outfit. I remember finding that, like, genuinely haunting and terrifying. <laughs> yeah, like the shot where he walks down the hallway after her? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. That's... And again, actually, that's one that's a good example of, like, going back to the first Halloween, where even though that scene seems really bloody, when you actually watch it, it's 
There's a few inserts, but it's nowhere near as bad. And actually, the director's cut has less inserts of the cuts and stuff. And uh, one of the things that made it really, really, I enjoyed it a lot when it came out. I remember, like I said, I saw it opening day in the theater was the ending. I thought the ending was fantastic. I think it's kind of... um, I always enjoy when directors take, like, uh, what you think is going to happen and then kind of turn it on its ear. Because, like, um, now this was erased... (laughs) <laughs> come two years later when Halloween 2 came out but uh, I really enjoyed his interpretation of because um, his idea was to make a bottle film where it was just going to he was going to make one Halloween and one Halloween only and so the idea of Michael just getting shot in the face and killed at the end like well you know that that's a reshot, a reshoot ending, right? What was the original? One? The original ending was that, uh, and it's actually it gets shot by the police, right? Basically, it's the scene. They still have the scene in the movie because basically Rob just tacked on an extra ten minutes to the movie because he felt that Laurie's character was wasted, um, and he wanted her to have a real arc and stuff. But the original ending of the movie was like after that thing in the pool, uh, Michael grabs her out of the car and tries to take her back into the house, and Loomis is talking sense to him. And the cops show up, and Michael actually puts the knife down and gives Loomis Lori. And as Loomis turns around, Michael takes a step forward, and it actually looks – because they have the deleted scene on the DVD. It actually looks like he just wants to go home with them, and then the cops just open fire. Yeah, I, okay, I have seen that. It's kind of like the ending of Five, but not as awesome, where he doesn't fall into the bar. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like – it would have been a fine ending, but like – he definitely made the right choice in going back. I mean, even though some of the most violent stuff in the movie is arguably in that last ten minutes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that ending definitely works better. And I think with the other ending, there wouldn't have been as much of a sensation. Like, when you end a horror movie on a moment where you walk out going, Oh, Jesus! Oh, my God! <laughs> like, that's what you want, especially out of a Rob Zombie movie, you know? And uh, he delivered on it. And then two years later, and I'm going to let... Corey, you take the reins on this one. I've had few experiences in a movie theater less enjoyable than Halloween. 2. Well, I think I, I agree, and that's I, I think that before Corey actually reveals like <laughs> what's missing from the theatrical cut, I, I I think that it's worth pointing out that yeah, I I can't imagine anybody being happy if they like the first Halloween by zombie coming to the sequel and then watching like you know that cut and just not feeling kind of like disappointed on on every level like we watched it together Corey and i and, and our friend drew we went to the theater and it was like i mean there I might have been like pissed. different different levels of disappointment and anger but overall none of us were happy you know it, it was just like what the fuck happened here it's like in a theater of seven people and i jeered <laughs> i booed at the <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it's a uh, it's pretty it's pretty crazy and you know if you go by the you know the the Rob Zombie's side of the story is clearly like a movie that had there was a lot of meddling going on. It did have, and like I said, as I found out in research, Academy Award nominee Octavia Spencer. Just, <laughs> yeah, just shit in that movie. Uh, there was, uh, and what's funny is like I completely like it's just like I walked out of of that, and you know, up to like a few days ago, if you'd asked me what's Halloween two about, I was like. I don't know. I just know it sucked. <laughs> I just, I just, I, I remember it sucked. I remember Doctor Loomis is a completely different character, which we were talking about this earlier. And, you know, he's just like he's not the guy from like you know the 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 first movie, and uh, and also 
the ending is just batshit crazy. It's like Sherry Moon, like, dressed in white, the fucking horse. I don't know. Like, it's one of the things where, like, your brain processes it to a way that it tries to have it make sense. And the closest that my brain could do was, like, it just doesn't make any sense. It's just, like, it, forget about that movie. Don't try to, like, even rationalize it. I, like, wanted to scream at that <laughs> shot where they show Michael without his mask on. It's like... <laughs> What the fuck? Yeah, and then but then talking to Corey about it, like you know, over the last couple of days, and just thinking about it, it was like, it's a cool idea for a movie. And I guess the director's cut, which I haven't seen and you haven't seen, I think that that it delivers on it, which is the idea of like, okay, so she survives, but she's just fucked up, and there is nothing that you can do to fix that. And the movie is really about her, just kind of like just being irreparably damaged Which by Halloween probably one. the most likely outcome if that was to happen yeah yes it yeah exactly like the most realistic thing but uh not but the yeah, way that movie portrays it in the theatrical cut but it right. seems like the most realistic possibility yeah I mean it seems like the theatrical cut is just like you know Rob Zombie's like okay Halloween 2 is not about Michael Myers it's about Laurie being fucked up yeah. and the Sue is like uh no <laughs> 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 Halloween 2 is about Michael Myers killing more people and well if you want to throw in that she's crazy at the end okay go for it but we need some blood so I guess I don't know I haven't seen the, the, the director's cut yeah, okay, so, I, as I said, the theatrical cut really pissed me off, and, like, I was lucky to f- that I just happened to see Halloween 2 at a red box, and I was like, you know what, for a dollar, and it had a commentary on it. So that's my thing. When I see a movie that I hated with a commentary, i like, I have to know what the fuck that dude was thinking. So I rented it for a dollar and went ahead and watched the movie again first, and I was like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> what, 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 whoa! Like, it is just, uh, I'm trying to think of an equivalent of, like, a, I guess, like, the movie with Mel Gibson, Payback, is the best equivalent to the difference between the director's cut and the actual version of the movie, wherein, like, in that movie and the actual version of the movie, Mel Gibson lives, but he didn't like that, and he was producer, so they changed it. Right. Uh, or, or, no, actually. No, he dies, uh, he right? di- Well, yeah. he dies in the director's cut. In the regular theatrical cut, he lives, and he's the big hero and everything. And this movie feels a lot like that, where the theatrical cut... You see the, like I said before, you see the skeleton of what Rob Zombie was trying to do, um, but it just, it's supposed to be a sequel to a slasher movie. And honestly, I think that actually, even most like fans of the first movie going into the second movie, the director's cut probably won't be 100% happy with it because it's not what they're expecting. Uh, if you're just a fan of Rob Zombie, I think it's a great movie and like you can get into it and really understand it a little bit better. But um, the difference is really is that, as you were saying, the second movie, the director's cut, is more focused on Laurie. Um, first off, it's been two years instead of one year, so it's not this bullshit of Michael returning home every year to kill people. Um, and again, it was like you were mentioning the mask. That didn't bother me so much just because – and in the director's cut, it makes more sense. But like, it's that idea that in the first movie, they demystified the idea of him as the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. So like now he's a guy, and so yeah, when you first see him, he doesn't have the mask on at all, and he's got the beard. And he's basically just been living out in the woods eating animals and shit for two years. Well, at the meantime, Lori has been trying to get over what happened to her, and as this is happening, like, really, she's trying to get with these people that were all hurt, but really, it's just pushing them all together and pissing them all off. In the director's cut, you also realize that Lori and, um... Annie? And Annie are actually a couple. That they're actually, like, together. And so, and it totally, their relationship's completely different. Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And their relationship's completely different. Like, in the theatrical cut, there's a little tension between them, but man... There are moments in the director's cut where the pure anger and emotion between these two people will almost make you cry. Where you're just like, that is like some of the most horrible things you could ever say to another human being. 
And what's great is Lori knows that that's what she's being, and that's making it even worse for her. So there are all these scenes where she goes to her therapist, who's played brilliantly by a woman who I really wish I could remember her name, but she's the main <laughs> character of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Um, and also the character that Rob Zombie based uh, Sherry Moon's character in uh, Lords of Salem off of. Um, and anyway, she's a great character, and like those scenes are really the crux of what the movie's about, which is about Laurie being lost and like nothing being able to help her, and like her being full of rage, which is also where they introduce the idea of the white horse, which is a uh, in dream dream like you know uh, dream reading, and also in some forms of psychology, a white horse is a representation of a release of power or a release of energy that has been built up for a long time. Um, which both with Michael and Lori play into the story, whereas Michael's just been wandering, and at the same time this is happening with Lori, Michael sees the billboard for Dr. Loomis's new book, which triggers again this whole idea of the family that's broken. And Michael, being twisted as he is, wants to put that back together, just his methods are totally fucked, you know. So anyway, he starts going back and looking, and around the same time, the book comes out revealing that Lori is Michael's little sister and that totally pushes her over the edge which is when her visions of michael and his mother go from being dreams that she's having to being actual visions and hallucinations and the movie never really explains why her and michael can share a hallucination but they set up enough other things in the movie to kind of give this kind of supernatural connection between them that maybe isn't supernatural like i mean even in terms of physics it's proven that like you are physically connected on an atomic level to like your mother, to people who are blood related because parts of your atom, like part of your physical makeup actually came from that physical makeup. So there is a metaphysical connection connecting you all. Um, and that's physics motherfucker, you know, uh, <laughs> really badly explained physics. Um, so anyway, it's like it works well enough with the other elements that are in play in the movie to get the idea of what's really going on. Um, in a much better way than theatrical. Like I said, they added kills that are just gratuitous stabbings and they cut out all the best scenes except for like the Dr. Loomis scenes. Cause as you said, he's a totally different character, but what I really love in the second one in the director's cut, there are a couple of more scenes. Loomis is a guy who in the first movie, you can see all the good intentions still in him, even though he's kind of become a dick by the end of the movie. And what he went through with Michael pretty much purged him of almost all of those, like, good intentions. But as the movie goes on and the director's cut towards the end, you really do see it getting to him. Like, this new person he's become. Like, the guy who early in the movie tells a woman, when I want your opinion, I'll beat it out of you, you know? Like, towards the end of the movie, he does have that turn where you're not really sure if he's doing it for the publicity, but it honestly seems like he feels a sense of responsibility to these people. Partly in that one, because he released that Lori was... And he believes that that's why Michael has Michael come back, back. You know, um, which is like Michael Reed's, right? Um, <laughs> but, you know, and then again, the movie is very surreal, and it's a very cerebral movie. It's... It's not what you would expect out of any version of a Halloween movie. So, I mean, I highly recommend people watching it, but if you really love Halloween and you're looking for a sequel that's in that same vein, then you're not going to get it. Well, like we talked about earlier, too, it's just I think he made it that way just because he wanted to make a movie of his, but he also didn't want to do another Halloween movie, but he didn't want else to fuck up his image. Yeah. So he just kind of did it in his, his, uh, his idea of... And he did feel that there was more room that you could expand on in a way that had never been expanded on in the original series, you know. Yeah. And again, props to Daniel Harris, 30-year-old playing a 17-year-old. <laughs> that, poor, that poor, poor girl. And I mean, like, she is 
even almost as much as Michael Myers. She's the icon of Halloween, even though like the old Halloween movies she was in were kind of crappy, like uh, four and five. Four is good. Five is very bad. Five is very very bad. But um, as a little as a kid, I totally had a crush on Danielle Harris. So in Halloween one, when Danielle Harris gets naked, I was just like, <laughs> "Holy crap!" It's Christmas. It's come early. Thank you, Rob Zombie Claus. Christmas came in Halloween. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's it's one of the things where, like, I guess you would, if you're going to watch Halloween 2, search for the director's cut. Absolutely. There is absolutely no way that you would enjoy the theatrical cut more than the director's cut. Yeah. You may not enjoy the director's cut, but trust me, the theatrical cut would be a much yeah. worse experience anyway. <laughs> but so, yeah. And Halloween 2 is what introduced the thing that pisses Rob Zombie off the most, which has happened in every, like, you know, ever since then. It happened on Witches of Salem. And actually, I'm sure it happened earlier, but the first time I heard about it was talking to Halloween 2, where the studio just kept telling him, make it more of a Rob Zombie movie. And he's like, I don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> and they, they handed him a DVD of House of a Thousand Corpses like this. It's like, no, that was that was old Rob Zombie. That was Rob Zombie getting his foot in the door. Um, but that is, I guess, that is as good a, a segue into Lords of Salem as we'll get. Yeah, so He went on a every other year interval there making films. And then he took uh, three years to make Lords of Salem, which he did everything on writing, directing, producing, all the whole... And like I said earlier, I think this is his best film. I like Devil's Rejects the most, but I think from a writing and also just a filmmaking standpoint, it looks great. It again, we watched it on YouTube, but it does actually. Look oh, I, I believe amazing. that. I believe that it looks great. My problems with Lords of Salem are not about the way it looks. Uh, Pretty fucking weird movie. Yeah, it, it, that's probably more along the lines. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the other one where there's a lot of stuff in that movie that I feel is just there to be weird. It doesn't serve a function, but it goes with the kind of movie he's making. Because again, that movie is based very highly on like the '80s subgenre of witches and satanic cult movies, which it has all the tropes of those kind of movies. So anytime in that movie there's something I don't like, it's like it tends to be something like that, like jump scares or something like that that I feel tonally doesn't go with what I would make this movie to be, but at the same time I understand why it's there and I can get over it. It's the only film of his too that I don't find any of the acting to be bad in it. That's, that's yeah, fair. That is, that is actually a good point. Well, there's one moment in the movie. Is it the uh, priest? No, no, no. Oh. The one moment in the movie is the moment where <laughs> the moment where Sherry Moon goes, Rob, this is stupid. I'm not doing oh, this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is basically like in the scene where she's supposed to be being impregnated. And she's got the two tentacles in her hands. And like she's basically just jerking off these two tentacles. And the cut is just literally like she opens her eyes and just throws her hands down. And, like, as we were watching it, I was just like, yeah, that's the moment where she was like, Rob, this is stupid. I'm not doing this. <laughs> yeah, that, not, nothing can really prepare you for a lot of the things in this movie because you think you know you're the, the road you're on. And then yeah. you take, like, a left turn and you're like, well, I didn't see this coming. Yeah, yeah it's really – it's particularly, I guess, not upsetting, but it just kind of throws you off because we watch House of a Thousand Corpses and then the next night we watch this one, which is, like, the two – Opposite ends, yeah. you know. This one's just so slow. Big of a film fan you are, you probably shouldn't watch any Rob Zombie films like <laughs> back to back. Maybe yeah, uh, I tweeted. Uh, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but I tweeted saying that Lords of Salem was Rob Zombie's Jackie Brown. And <laughs> you explain. <laughs> yeah, hashtag things I will say in the podcast. <laughs> well, because you know uh, Tarantino, when uh, I think it's in the special features for Jackie Brown, where like he's talking about how like. He made this movie knowing that the critics... It's oh, a movie yeah. that critics would say, like, 
you know, he would make like 40 years down in his career and he'd right. be like, oh, you know, this is a movie that shows that he's grown up and that he's like, you know, a, a, an older, wiser filmmaker because he takes his time getting stuff done or whatever. And he's like, I'll need to wait 40 years. I can do yeah, that movie right now. now. <laughs> so it, it, that's kind of like, you know, this movie, it's such a slow burn that, you know, th- I mean, that's where my comment came from. I don't really compare them in yeah. any other way. But You really but, do have to be in the mood for this kind of movie right. to, to well, watch it. The only other real similarities that seem where Sherry Moon puts Chris Tucker in her trunks. <laughs> 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 uh, but, yeah, it's it was very, I, I again, it made me appreciate Sherry Moon as an actress because she's actually, I think she's pretty good. Yeah, in this. she's fantastic. She uh, and uh, And also Rob Zombie being very... Unlike Rob Zombie for a long time yeah, before it takes it actually, a while before things start getting well. Yeah, that yeah, opening yeah. scene, it's like yeah, the yeah, first yeah. off the bat, they're like, "Let's let let's show you all the naked women you never wanted to see naked." <laughs> yeah, so let's make you sure know? that you understand this is a Rob Zombie yeah. movie. She's gonna lick a baby yeah, that's covered in blood and all you know, that stuff. But then we're gonna give you like forty-five minutes to an hour where like she's, oh, she's a DJ. Yeah, you she's know. A, <laughs> well, and I also love that the first uh, like we the first fifteen minutes of the movie, over half of that is just people dancing. Yeah, they're having a good time. Yeah, overall, yeah. It's and just, so you're just like, oh, this is gonna get really bad pretty soon. Like like horrible for the characters. Bad, right. You know? These are like the happiest Rob Zombie characters you've ever seen. And, yeah, you know, they're having a good time. They have good jobs, like a stable life. Like yeah, they have they're friends. hanging out with Ken Forey. How can you get any better? Right, yeah, it's so good. And something I really, really enjoyed about it too is how there's one character, one main character, which a lot of his movies are like ensembles, and then that main character is existing in two different universes, and the one doesn't know about the other, and like how the her former boyfriend or whatever thinks she's like all fucked up on drugs again and shit like that. Yeah. Well, eventually, eventually, eventually she, she is does. all fucked up like on drugs. Weird, unexpected, like a real life element that you wouldn't expect Rob Zombie to add into one of his films. Well, yeah, which again is like going back to that whole him being like, I think he's probably, in terms of writing, one of the best voices of what I'm calling the Bronze Age of horror, just in terms of putting character back into horror movies. Um, yeah, uh, but then again, it, it is it does follow that, that pattern that I, I brought up with uh, House of a Thousand Corpses, which is like, you know, there's an interesting setup and eventually it just like the second half of the movie to me it becomes less interesting because it's just about like okay we've established this world and we established this character and all these inter- interesting things now let's just put her th- through the ringer and like let's just kind of like test the audience it's a different way than than uh, uh, House of Thousand Corpses because that one is obviously more in your face and more like you know, and this one is more as in like what the fuck is going on yeah it, the it, last it, 10 minutes are really weird yeah from the moment, from the moment she closes the door on them, yeah. like you know, they bring her to the radio right. station, and then she closes the door on them. She says goodbye to them, and, and you're just like, "I like it. It looks pretty. It looks like it should." Be. I, I'm just missing something, and there's well, that feeling that you're oh, missing well, something. And what's also great is right around that same time is in the movie. Again, it's like technically, I do think it's probably one of his best made film in terms of the shots and the the prettiness of it. I'm, I have issues with like some of the pacing, but again, I, I that's not. It's indicative to the kind of movie he's making. Um, and also, we'll get to the... Uh, in a minute, I'll get to all the problems that the movie has. I know why they have them, and so I forgive most of them uh, because of that. But in the movie, they do an interesting thing where the whole movie is shot like real life. Like, he's using very standard lenses and stuff. And there's that one shot I was telling you about where all of a sudden her hallway looks like a cathedral. 
you know, where it's right. like huge and big, and it's the first time that that's happened. And then literally less than five minutes later, we go through the door at the end of the hall, and you're actually in a cathedral, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. So he does a real good job visually of slowly starting you off in the real world and then having the world be consumed towards the end by that alternate reality. Yeah, and there's no real way to explain how Satan is portrayed in the movie. <laughs> right. It's a strange thing. Yeah, th there is a... a... The the scene where the where she blows the priest. Yeah, I remember we were watching it last night with a, with another friend, and I think he said, you know, she like she starts going down on the priest, and he's like, "What the fuck? That's not like that doesn't make any oh, sense." No, that's when we were watching it, and I was, right, right, we were all watching, but Tom goes like, "That doesn't make any sense," and I was like, "This it, has to be a dream." Right, and then Corey said, "That has to be a dream," and I wanted to say. I hope it isn't because it was really making the movie interesting. I was like, if, <laughs> if it's not a dream, then we're going to have to deal with this, with the fact that she just blew yeah. a, a priest through the rest of the movie. But then, of course, it was a dream, which kind of takes me back to something that bothered me in this movie and to a certain extent to like uh, uh, other Rob Zombie movies, uh, which is like the the like Halloween 2 is uh, probably the worst example of this or the best example of this bad thing, which is like the, the dream sequences, like yeah. the overuse of dream sequences just for the sake of like cool imagery. Right. You know, like in, in fairness, if most of that stuff hadn't got cut out of the theatrical cut of Halloween 2, I don't think Lords of Salem would have as much of that because you can see in Lords of Salem, a lot of the stuff that he does in the director's cut, he's really bringing that to fruition, like spending a whole movie just dedicated to that kind of delving into the psychosis uh, but he bases it in a supernatural event i right. do think it's also interesting to note in this movie that while it's about witches uh they don't actually do any magic like there's like one incantation but actually they're like devil worshipers which goes back to him like making that very specific kind of movie like from the 80s but doing it in a bronze age of horror type way Right, they're not. Yeah, they're not actual witches. They're right. They're, they're more Satanists. They're devil know. groupies. Well, not even Satanists. They're devil worshippers. Yeah. yeah. Do you want me to go into the whole thing about the actor passing there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't know about that. Did you know that the one of the the main characters, the main villain in the movie, died? Yeah, like one of the reasons why the movie is the way it is is there's a whole B plot missing from the movie, where um the actor playing uh the descendant of uh or like the the Reverend Joseph, the dude who did all the Salem witch trial killings. Um, yeah. There's the guy he actually cast to play that character died like a couple of weeks into shooting when they had only shot like a portion of his stuff and they didn't, couldn't afford to go back and reshoot it. And they couldn't afford to like recast a guy and kind of redo versions of those scenes. So he literally had to take the actor playing the second in command bad guy and pretend that he is the villain of the movie. And kind of literally there are shots where you can tell the shot is a little more blurry because he had to crop it, and shots where it's obviously a pan where they just use the end of it. And that's why that character doesn't appear that much. But originally there was supposed to be a lot more of the original Salem witch trials in the movie. And after losing that, he just kind of had to make up for it in other places. So I think some of the times when the movie lags, like in a dream sequence, when you're like, it should get moving, I think that's because he lost his... B story to cut to and again Rob Zombie is this guy who every movie he's made has been plagued with difficulties and just like uh, House of a Thousand Corpses is a big one and I know that this one's a big one as well as Halloween 2 and it's just another thing that I think speaks to how good a filmmaker he is that any of these movies came out watchable you know <laughs> on any level it's like even like the mess that House of a Thousand Corpses is it's entertaining on some level even if it's just to a small demographic of people you know, um, in all right, all these should have been clusterfucks. I think I, it's very interesting that the potential he has more so than his current body of work. I would like, really enjoy seeing 
a really, really good screenwriter pairing up with him, where Rob's not necessarily got his finger directly in the creative process. I think he does, and this shows clearly his eye for it. He does have a lot of potential as a filmmaker. Uh, yeah, I think that it would be – we can't not mention uh, Bruce Davison's uh, kind of like – I mean, I love him. He's great. Great for Really? Yeah. Well, either way, it is kind of a thankless role. I made the joke last night when we were watching it. We're like basically – they're like – Hey, like, can you come in, Bruce? And then he was like, yeah, sure. So what's my role? And he's like, well, you got to deliver a lot of exposition, and then you're going to get killed. By three ch- old <laughs> by, chicks. By three old women. They're just going to beat the shit out of you. Right. Yeah, so which is it's it's kind of sad because he's great and he's obviously doing his best, but every scene that he comes in on, he's just like there's this new piece of information yeah. that he's like the Doc Brown of the right. movie. Where he just kind of has to like <laughs> feed it to the audience in a well, good way, which he he can do because he's yeah. a good actor. Well, you he's know? the it, other half yeah. of <laughs> we gotta get going. <laughs> well, he's the other half of that B storyline where you're going back and learning all the things about the original. So it's like now that you don't have that stuff, it's like yeah, he, he really has like the most thankless role in the movie where it's like. He gives you exposition and very little else of interest. Um, it's like, oh, he's got a hot wife, and uh, apparently he works at a wax museum. Are we going to see the wax? No, we're not going to see the wax museum. <laughs> no, okay, we're only going to see him uh, see him when we need something explained. Exactly. <laughs> cut, cut to Bruce. Yes. Yeah, that was the other thing. Yeah, last night we were joking that originally in the script they turned him into a giant jellyfish man, but that had already <laughs> been done. Uh, I have a, I have this. Uh, our friend Brandon Curtis sent me this. Send me like some reviews from like he's like how long do I have to send you like Rob Zombie stuff so you can read it on um, on the show this is like this is just an excerpt of uh, Walter Chow's review of uh, Lords of Salem and uh, he's talking about how uh, at the late night screening I attended after the Lords of Salem opened. It was me and a buddy and a trio of teenagers somewhere in the dark above us. When the film ended, a beat passed, and then a teenage girl's voice piped out, "What? Fuck you, Rob Zombie." <laughs> <laughs> that seems a little harsh. That's more a Halloween two closing right. line. That was, I think, that was you at the end of Halloween yeah. two. <laughs> like, no, actually, no. I was like, "Why, Rob Zombie? <laughs> yeah. Why'd you hurt me like this?" Yeah, but then he continues. He goes like. Proof of a certain kind of success, you'll agree. I love this movie. It's only grown in the distance I've had from it. So he actually likes it. Uh, and that's uh, that's good. I think he gave, let me see, he gave Halloween, the first Halloween, two and a half stars out of four. Uh, hey, uh, I told him I mentioned this on the podcast, a former drinking buddy of mine, Dan, when the first, the 2007 Halloween came out, the first thing he did was get on IMDb on the comments and he said, which is probably the greatest troll comment of all time, Rob Zombie makes John Carpenter look like a hack. And then, like, <laughs> sent all the people into the Just set them on fire. Yeah. Um, oh, and then Chow's review of The Devil's Rejects is uh, three out of four stars. So overall, he, he likes Rob Zombie movies. He's clearly not for everybody, but the dude's got a niche, and he does have, I think, his potential is more interesting, yeah. like I said, than his body of work well, so far. Well, it's a very different style, but it's like a Roman Polanski thing where, like, the general public is not going to enjoy most Roman Polanski movies, but, like, they definitely have their own voice, and they have their own feel, and to people who are into that, like... I think that, yeah, if you're into Rob Zombie movies, every Rob Zombie release 
save for Halloween 2, it's not going to disappoint you. Right. It, you'd be like, oh, wow, that's cool. He yeah. did this now. Even if you don't like... love it, you're like, well, that was interesting. I'm glad I watched that. Right. If you're like me, you're going to wait till you have a friend that really likes Rob Zombie movies and just wait and watch it with them. That way like, yeah. they can explain it well, to you or they can get you through like the really unpleasant stuff yeah, of making jokes. I don't think that... you ever would have watched Rob Zombie movie if I hadn't hounded you about Devil's Rejects. Right. That's the only reason I've watched Rob I mean, I mean, you worked in the theater when it came out and you saw people like walking out of the movie and yeah, all heard all that's... the comments. So, but I, and that's whenever I heard about that, I was like, "Oh no, dude! You have, you have to as a filmmaker, you have to see it." I think the only movie of his that I've seen without like anybody prompting me to do it was Halloween, and yeah. that's just because I was curious. Yeah, you know, I think that a lot of people probably did that too. Like, where they're like, "Okay, I'm curious what Rob Zombie." is going to do with Halloween well, plus, just because his last name is Zombie. Yeah, and plus it? the trailer and all the posters, like the advertising campaign looked awesome, you know. Uh, they had that really cool poster that was like just a bunch of shadows that made up like a pumpkin, and in the middle it was like Michael Myers. It was it was really cool. Overall, I guess we should cl- uh, finish by ranking them according to like our personal taste. I did that to you yesterday. I was yeah. like, okay, there's two ways you can rank Rob Zombie's filmography. Quality wise and and enjoyment wise, like your personal taste, because you may not you may not enjoy his best movie, his best made movie as much as you enjoy a different one. Yeah. So like to me, quality wise, I would say Devil's Rejects is his best, followed by Halloween, uh, Lords of Salem, House of Thousand Corpses, and Halloween Two, theatrical cut because I haven't seen the right. Yeah. That's like on like uh, uh just. Quality wise, but if I go by like what am I most likely to rewatch, Halloween would be first, and then House of Thousand Corpses, Lords of Salem, Devil's Rejects, and Halloween 2. Which in my case, it just means like just, I'm ranking them by unpleasantness, yeah. Like <laughs> Devil's Rejects for a lot of people is just a tough movie to watch right. because of the subject matter, yeah. So, uh, you go now, Alex, yeah. In terms of what I would say, I would probably rank them the same regardless. Um, Devil's Rejects, Lords of Salem, Halloween, Chasm, House of a Thousand Corpses, <laughs> Giant Chasm, Halloween 2. So even though you think that Lords of Salem is his best... I think it's his most well-made film. Okay, but you still... Technically speaking, yeah. like as a You filmmaker. still watch Lords of... Uh, no, Devil's, Devil's Rejects, Rejects first. More, yeah. yeah, I think Devil's Rejects is more ambitious. Definitely. Right word, but <laughs> I think that Lords of Salem is a more polished film. That's fair. Um... For me, yeah. For me, it's Devil's Re- in terms of the ones that just enjoyment wise. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna say Devil's Rejects, Halloween Two, the director's cut, uh, then Halloween, then House of a Thousand Corpses, and the re- only reason it beats Lords of Salem for me in terms of enjoyability is because it's just a fun movie, and also because me being me, like the the movies that it's a love letter to, those are the movies I really love. Like that kind of campy, over the top, crazy '80s horror movie is just like, and also like it's got Bill Mosley from Texas Chainsaw Two, and like his name's Otis, which is like from Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and like it really <laughs> is just a love letter to those kind of movies, and I really enjoy it. Whereas it's definitely not a very, I don't think it's technically a very good movie, you know. And then anyway, last on the enjoyment would be Lords of Salem. However, on my list of well-made, or like, you know, what I think is the most well-made, I do think that actually Lords of Salem is a better polished film than Devil's Rejects, but I still put Devil's Rejects first because I think it accomplishes more of what it sets out to do in terms of, and it doesn't work for everybody still, but I think in terms of taking you through a very specific emotional ride, I think it hits all those marks and performs extremely admirably. Um, I think that the 
and this is again kind of tough for me, but it's like I do actually think that the director's cut of Halloween 2 is an extremely proficiently made movie. And the only reason why I would rank it above Lords of Salem is because of my personal investment in that story when watching it. Lords of Salem does a very similar thing like I was saying earlier, but because it's a little longer and takes a little longer to get into it, and because I don't have another movie preceding it so that I'm already invested in the characters, that takes a little bit away from it just in terms of the whole movie experience. But then, again, Lords of Salem is definitely shot better. You know, um, It definitely has some better performances from the cast that it has. So it would be three. Um, actually, yeah, it'd be three. Then ha- Halloween, one. And then at the bottom, House of a Thousand Corpses. Though, again, the reason House of a Thousand Corpses is so high on my like list is because I love the dialogue in it. Like, it's got the line, you know, Who are you? Jimmy Olsen, cub reporter for the Daily Asshole. <laughs> You know, and uh, that's in Devil's Rejects, too, that dialogue. I think that's why I love those versions of those characters. You know, like in Devil's Rejects, Otis has the line of like, boy, the next words come out of your mouth better be some brilliant fucking Mark Twain shit because it's definitely getting chiseled on your tombstone, you know? Well, he's a family man above all else. Above and, all else. And a perfect uh, representation. Rob Zombie and Sherry Moon Zombie are, you know, what Judd Apatow and Leslie Mann wish they were. What? I could not agree more with <laughs> Wouldn't it be fun to see Rob Zombie's version of the Nicolas Cage movie Family Man starring him? <laughs> yes, and Sherry Moon instead of Tia Leone. Yeah, I, yeah. I could totally see that. that. Or Rob Zombie's version of This Is 40. Does that matter? <laughs> if we're just gonna... It couldn't be any worse than Aptown. Um, yeah, so a perfect representation of what Thanksgiving's all about is Rob Zombie. Yes. But, uh, yeah, uh, Corey, thank you for lending your time to us and recording this with us. Thank you all for having me. Yes. Um, Do we need to plug anything the Plugs? Well, uh, we don't know what's going to be happening in the future in Thanksgiving because we're still like at least a month away from Thanksgiving when this will be go up. But uh, but we know we want to, uh, as usual, plug uh, the Festive Years who provided our outro and intro music. Their album, Don't Let Me Use You, is up on iTunes and Bandcamp. And that's our friend Chris Lloyd who let us use their music. Uh, and uh, that's all I have to plug. Alex? Yeah. Uh, iTunes, rate, review, subscribe. We're the Contrarians, not the Contrarians Podcast. Fuck the Contrarians Podcast. We are the Contrarians.com. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, be sure to email us at we are the Contrarians at gmail.com. Uh, Corey, what do you got for us? Um, well, actually, right now I've been in town working on a movie called Modern Society, directed by Beryl uh, Rose. Uh, so y'all should keep an eye out for that and also if you want to look it up on Facebook my film that I'm currently working on is called Iris Uh, we're in between phases of production but come out show your support and then someday you can rip my movie apart (laughs) (laughs) I think all that's left is uh, wishing our listeners a happy Thanksgiving and hopefully they're like cuddling together after eating some turkey and watching their favorite Rob Zombie movie Uh, Lords of Salem (laughs) wash down the turkey (laughs) yeah yeah they're like they're a little fool, a little drunk from all the wine, and they just it'll just make perfect sense for them. It will. Perfect night, fireplace, pumpkin pie, and house with a thousand corpses. And with all that <laughs> gore, you can purge and eat some more. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. And happy Thanksgiving. Oh, I can't change. Won't you buy-